0: you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19, we're going to finish up chapter 19 today. Kelly's going to come read to us just verses 1 through 29. So Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 29. Ready to go.
1: Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man-lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law? "'Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away.' "'And Lot said to them, "'Oh no, my lords, "'behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, "'and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. "'But I cannot escape to the hills, "'lest the disaster overtake me and I die. "'Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, "'and it is a little one. "'Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? "'And my life will be saved.' He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, last week, we kind of did an overview, a flyover of the end of chapter 18 and all of chapter 19, and we said that the controlling verses that were meant to inform the rest of chapter 19 were found in chapter 18, verses 17 and 19. So if you want to look back really quick at chapter 18, where God says in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then in verse 19, it says, the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So God's about to do something, and he wants to make sure that Abraham sees it, because it's the way that God does righteousness and justice. And last week, we saw eight things God was doing. We kind of just touched on the eight. Well, this morning, we're going to dig into the three that I think are the major ones, or the main ones that God was talking about when he said he was going to do something that had to do with righteousness and justice. So this morning, there's three things primarily we're going to look at. Lot's rescue, the raining down of fire and sulfur, and the death of Lot's wife. So I think those are the three big things, or the three major things. We looked at eight things, some of them were subcategories, if you will. But this morning, we're going to focus just on those three. Lot being rescued it was something God is doing that he wants Abraham to see. The raining down of fire and sulfur, and then thirdly, the death of Lot's wife. Now, before we get into that, the first point, I, I, just, I want to say this because I hope this helps prepare us for this morning. Th- this will be by far the most um, sensitive message I've ever preached in 27 years of pastoring. Um, this one just has a lot of nuances, a lot of things that need to be said, that um, if said wrongly could be hurtful, and if not heard correctly could be hurtful. So I've just been praying for me that I don't say anything dumb, And for us, that will hear what God wants to say. And I am certain that when I'm done, many of you are going to go, Oh, I wish Matt had said this. Or if Matt had only said it that way. Or I'm not quite sure what he meant when he said. That's the conversations we should have next week together. So when we're done here this morning, if you have questions and thoughts, we need to get together. Tyler and Jordan and I will get together. Just anything else that you need to talk through um, because of the sensitive nature of some of the things that I have to share this morning, I want to make sure that you hear that from me right out, of the, right out of the gate, my heart, for you. I want to communicate in a way that's helpful, but I know I'm human. And so I'm going to do my best, and then hopefully we can have follow-up conversations if that's necessary. Deal? Deal. All right. So here we go. Three major things God is doing. Number one, he is going to rescue Lot. Lot's rescue. God is going to give Lot the ability to escape his own wrath, God's wrath. So God is going to help him escape God's wrath. Last week we touched on this slowly or, or quickly overviewed. I want to look into more of the details of what happens here with this rescue of Lot. We, we see Lot where I, I guess we shouldn't know if the first time in your Bible that, wow, Lot went back to Sodom. Because the last time we saw Lot, he was getting rescued from Sodom. Remember, Abraham went and had to extract him from being a prisoner of war. Well, he's back in Sodom again, so here he is, and he encounters the same two angels that Abraham encountered in the previous chapter, and it looks like he treats them pretty much the same way, right? At the very beginning of this, he's sitting just like Abraham was. He sees them. He rises. He goes out to meet them. He bows his face to the ground. He offers to wash their feet. He presses them strongly to come back with him, and he makes them a feast, So a lot of parallels between him and Abraham. It seems that Lot has a lot of good things going as far as being a man who knows how to show hospitality and care for strangers. And then when the men of the town basically interrupt their dinner or near the end of the dinner, crowding it, beating down the door, wanting to get in, Lot actually goes out of his house, shuts the door behind him and begs with them to not act so wickedly. I mean, that's bold. I mean, if I've got a, I don't know how many people banging, wanting to beat my house down, I don't know that I'm going to go outside to greet them. So he's got some courage here as he goes out to do this. But then, in verse 8, things go terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. As Lot offers the men of the town, his two daughters, in place of the two men. Now, this is just bad. This is as bad as it gets. This is terrible. Terrible. Some have tried to argue that it was, in their, it was a cultural thing that they did this. Look, I can't find that proof anywhere where this was a cultural thing. And to be honest, even if it was, I don't care about culture. This is terrible. What he did here is awful, and it is actually infuriating when you think about it. Men, our role in the lives of all the women that we interact with is to serve them, to protect them, to provide for them in ways that is appropriate to the nature of the relationship. And Lot is doing the opposite here. He is doing the exact opposite. And what he does, I think it's meant, I think we read it and it it should, something should raise up in us that goes, what? This is wrong. This is bad. And I can't imagine being his two daughters overhearing this. What did our dad just say? That they can have us in place of these two guys? I mean, they must've been filled with fear, anxiety, horror, rejection, panic, must've filled their hearts. I mean this is this is as wicked I think as you can get in scripture to see a dad wanting to give up his two daughters to a crowd of men to do with them to do with them what they want. And it's only because of God's intervention and thank God for God's intervention that he foils their father's plan by striking these guys blind. I mean he, that's it and then the angel grabs Lot and drags him back in the house. I mean this is all God's protection. Because they could have said, oh yeah, we're going to take those guys and your daughters and gone in and got them. But God intervenes in his kindness and saves them. Now, I I think there's a play on words here with this whole idea of Lot wanting to bring the daughters out and then how the angels want to bring Lot out of the city. So if you look at verse 8, it says, Lot says, Let me bring them out to you, out of my house. Let me bring my daughters out of my house. And if you look at verse 17, what do the angels do? They want to bring them out of the town to be saved. So you've got the irony here that Lot is bringing out his daughters, and they're going to die, probably, whereas the angels are going to bring Lot out of the town so he can live. And that's why it says in verse 17, he brings them out so they can escape for their life. So there's this reversal that God is doing, I think, in this story. He wants it to catch our attention that Lot meant something bad with the bringing out, and now God's doing something really good by bringing them out. So no wonder, in verse 16, in verse 19, we see of the mercy of God being referenced, the great kindness of God being referenced. God is very kind, and he's very merciful. And I also want to say that I think it's very wrong. Personally, when I think about what Lot did, it semi-pisses me off to see him get off the hook. Maybe it's just me, but I want to see him get something. Something needs to go down. He needs a little adjustment, a little correction. All right, let him escape, but something needs to happen. There's something in me that is enraged at what he did and that it somehow is just getting disregarded, not even noticed. And then... I read God's perspective of this story in 2 Peter 2, verses 6 to 10. This is God's perspective. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lot, maybe that's a misprint. Righteous lot, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, parentheses, for as that righteous, really, God? Righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment." Hmm. Now, I read that three times God throws out that Lot was righteous, and I compare that to what I read in Genesis. And everything we've learned about Lot in Genesis, and there is a massive problem here for me. I mean, these two things are going head on. My perspective of Lot and God's perspective of Lot are very different. Is that true for you? I mean, I'm not, I'm not putting Lot in the righteous Category. Yet God says it three times as if he wants to make sure that we believe it, that it wasn't a misprint. Three times, no, he was righteous. But my assessment of Lot runs right up against God's assessment of Lot. God's assessing him as righteous. I'm assessing him as he needs punishment. And I think that's the point. I think that's the very point. I think this story is meant to make the reader enraged, wanting him almost to be punished so that when we see God's kindness, we are overwhelmed with his grace. That we'd be blown away by his mercy. That we would see God being merciful and kind to someone who does not deserve it. And that we would be overwhelmed. See, he does not deserve God pursuing him angels grabbing him to drag him out of the city. He doesn't deserve to escape God's wrath. He doesn't deserve to be called righteous. All those things are meant to rattle our cage so that we'll stand amazed at the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God. And Lot's escaping of God's wrath is really based in his relationship with Abraham. Do you see that in verse 29? So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. He he remembered Abraham. It seems that the righteousness of Abraham that we've been learning about was somehow credited to Lot. Almost like Lot was included in the covenant when he was circumcised, assuming he was. That he was included in the family so he receives the blessing of Abraham so that he would then escape God's wrath. Last week after the message, theologian Casey Golden said to me, look, Abraham is a type of Christ. His righteousness is being credited to Lot. And isn't that true? In this sense... Obviously, at the end of the day, Jesus' righteousness has to be credited to Abraham and Lot. But in this case, there's something happening where God has favor on Abraham. And because of Abraham's relationship with Lot, Lot gets favor from God too. And I think it is a picture of Christ. I think it's a little foreshadowing, even way back in Genesis, how someone else's righteousness can be credited to someone else. How someone can escape God's wrath based on somebody else's righteousness. Someone can actually be credited righteousness from somebody else. And that story just continues all the way through the Old Testament until we get to Jesus, who ultimately does that for us when he credits his righteousness to us. So this is, I think this story is a picture of that, and I think it's just a a beautiful reminder of the grace of God, the marvelous, matchless, boundless grace of God that is greater than all our sin. Oh, how beautiful is the sacrifice of Christ that all of our sins are forgiven because of him, nothing to do with our own righteousness. I love the verse in the from Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Love it. Not because of my works and not because of lots. So we look at lot in the example, we say, look at the grace of God. And we celebrate the grace of God and what he has done. So that's the first thing God does. He rescues Lot. And then he turns and he rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's the second big thing God is doing that he wants to make sure that Abraham sees. We're told twice in verse 24 that it was the Lord himself who rained down the fire And the sulfur, verse 24, says, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So there's no question who did it. God did it. It wasn't a natural disaster or something just happened. Spontaneous combustion of sulfur in the air. God did it. And so it raises the question, what is it that provoked God's anger to such a point that it caused him to punish the entire city? Chapter 18, verse 20, just says that their sin was very grave. And I want to ask, well, what sin is it talking about? So here we go. This is, this is where things are going to get very sensitive. And I hope I can do this very caring while also communicating what is true. It has only been in recent years that anything other than homosexuality has been, has been attributed to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And recently, gay and lesbian pastors, preachers, have said the sin is not homosexuality, that the sin was actually them either not showing hospitality or that their sin was that they were going to try to take advantage of the two angels and it wasn't, it wasn't mutual. So Those are the two things. So let me just address these. So I want you to know what others are saying. So they'll say that the sin that God destroyed them for was not showing hospitality. And they get this from Ezekiel 16. In Ezekiel 16, verse 49, it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So they say that that's the reason that they got destroyed. Ezekiel goes on to say they were haughty and did an abomination before me. I'm not sure exactly how that is not referring to their homosexuality, but perhaps it was referring to them not caring for the needy. And then he says, so I removed them when I saw it. So that's the first argument. And they also say that there's nowhere in scripture that says that the sin was homosexuality, which in a minute I'll show you is not true. The second argument is to say that this was, the sin they committed was that the sexual encounter that the men wanted was not mutual with the two angels. Um, In other words, it was sexual assault that was their sin. The argument is that God is okay with two men getting married, two ladies getting married, but as long as they both agree to it, that there's no forced sex happening. So let me address both of these simultaneously so you guys know the arguments that are out there. First is, if the sin was not showing hospitality and they didn't want to assault them sexually, then it makes no sense to why he would have offered them his two daughters. Does that make sense? I don't think they were pounding the door down going, hey, bring the guys out so we can show them hospitality. Although that could, that's the argument that some use. And it wouldn't make sense he'd offer them their daughters instead, as if they'd rather show hospitality to them than the men. So I think there's something wrong with that interpretation. I think it's also wrong because the word no in verse 5 in context, everywhere else in Scripture refers to sex. That's what the word know means. So when it says bring them out that we may know them, it's not so we can get to know their name and their family and their habits. No, it, it means something wrong here is going on. The third thing that you need to know is that there are arguments in the New Testament that I think make clear that the sin was homosexuality. So we're going to go to those in a minute because I want to show them to you so you understand that. But before I get to those, we're going to kind of work our way into that, I, as I was preparing this, thought, I don't, I want to make sure that we all, because we don't talk about this topic very often as a church. Thank goodness. Because I don't want to talk about this kind of stuff all the time. But because we work through books of the Bible, we're going to get to stuff like this as we work through books of the Bible. So that's why we're here. This is not my choice. This is God's choice for us at this time. But I want to say this, because I think it's, I want our, I want our understanding of what's happening with with sex and and our world uh, to be whole, to be accurate to what God would want. So I'm gonna say this Sex is an amazing gift from God. Let's begin there. We can smile, we can laugh in the next three minutes as I say some things that I think are supposed to bring some joy to us if we're married this morning. So I think it is. In fact, I have often used, when I was in the blue collar world especially, <laughs> for my apologetic, when guys would say, so Why do you believe in God? And I'd say, Because of sex. There's no way we could have evolved into people who have sex. It just couldn't happen. There's no way in a trillion years it could just happen. Sex is too multifaceted in pleasure. All the parts line up perfectly. All the parts are sensitive in the right place at the right time. Male parts change to match lady parts. Come on. It's got to be God. So I've used that argument with guys, and I don't know if any of them ever got converted from it, but (laughs) it at least led to fun conversations sex is just a gift from God. and I don't think in our best day we could ever come up with anything equivalent to it. Which leads me to, I want to read 1 Corinthians 7. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, I see God celebrating sex, telling us that it's good, and also helping us to see that sex is for men and women. Okay, no mention of Sodom here. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I just want you to see this. I think it's very, I find this very helpful. So this is 1 Corinthians 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and we're not sure what those were because it's in a previous letter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I think he's talking about outside of marriage because everything now he's going to talk about is about marriage. And I want you to notice how often he's going to use the word man and woman, husband and wife. So here's what he's going to say. Because, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband the husband should give to her wife his wife her conjugal can't say the word conjugal thank you rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does do not deprive one another except perhaps maybe by argument by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I want you to see in this is that 14 times we see men, women, husband, wife. If God wanted to transition things from the Old Testament into the New Testament to be more hip and modern and to include men and men and women and women, this would have been the place to do it. In my perspective, he could easily have said uh, each man should have his own man or wife and each woman her own husband or wife. And he doesn't. So it's very clear that this is for husbands and wives. And it also tells us that sex is good. Husbands and wives, have sex. Enjoy it. Stop to pray and then have more sex. I mean, that's what he's saying. But sadly, like other gifts from God, sex gets abused and twisted. And as a result, it carries with it, I think, a unique sense of guilt and shame. I think guilt and shame can come if perhaps you've done things sexually that you wish you hadn't done or perhaps things were done to you that should not have been done. And so I just want you to hear from my heart this morning and Tyler and Jordan I'm sure would join me in this that if that is you this morning if you have been assaulted or harmed or abused sexually that we are very sorry that we know you live in deep pain and hurt and maybe even shame and guilt. And I think you might need me just to say to you this morning that it is not your fault. If you have been abused, it is not your fault, no matter what the abuser may have told you. And Tyler and Jordan and I are here for you, to talk with you, to help you, because we realize this is a very complicated, complex, sensitive personal area of our lives so if you want to get together we would love to meet with you or help you find someone you would feel comfortable meeting with because it doesn't get more I think potential for you to have shame or guilt or hurt to struggle with than when it comes to this area of your life so we're here for you now let's turn specifically to what God says about Sodom and Gomorrah so 2 Peter chapter 2 says this. I'd already read some of this to you, but now I'm going to connect it to the last sentence to show you that, in fact, their sin was sexual immorality in the form of homosexuality. So here's what it says. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked— For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So I think, in context, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the indulging in the lust of defiling passion, literally the word indulgence, they went on a journey to do passionate things that are defiled, that are wrong, and to despise authority, the authority of God saying that's not what you're supposed to do. So there's one example. If that's not clear enough, Jude 7 says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued Unnatural desire serving as, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So I just want you to see the phrase there specifically of unnatural desires. They did what was unnatural. They did what wasn't normal. Okay? So that was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the word indulgent is actually just the word for it's a word for gross. They did gross sexually immoral things when it talks about the unnatural desire, it actually in the Hebrew has this idea of strange flesh, doing things that don't make sense in the flesh, in bodies. So I think it's clear that this unnatural desire that they had was sexual sin in the form of homosexuality that caused God to pour down fire on them. And in case that's not clear enough, Romans 1.26 tells us this, following the idea of natural and not natural relations. For this reason, God gave them up to a dishonorable passion. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So there's a natural thing that happens with a man and a woman. and He's saying here this is contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So I just want to, I feel like as a church, we lovingly need to make sure we plant a clear flag that homosexuality, lesbianism, same-sex sexual activity is not natural. The wording here, it's not what God wants. It's not how God made things to be. It just doesn't. It's not natural. It doesn't work. It's not how God intended things to happen. And I think one of the reasons that it's sinful, and we're going to go all the way back now to the Highleys' farm a year and a half ago where we talked about marriage. I think one of the reasons that it's wrong in God's sight is because marriage is supposed to paint a picture of Christ and the church. God and his bride... And so if you distort that, you're distorting the very picture of us and Jesus. So I think that's probably one of the main reasons why this is a sin that is particularly worthy of fire and ash falling from heaven. I think that could be what is going on here. So let me say a few more pastor things here for a moment because I know that either through video or tape or in this room, there's people that struggle with same-sex attraction. And so I want to address that, and I want to hopefully be helpful here. I often hear people say when they have same-sex attraction, they'll say, well, doesn't God just want me to be happy? And so what is the answer to that, church? The answer is yeah. (laughs) God wants you to be very happy. Happier than you could ever imagine, but happy in Him. Him. Yeah, so God is all for your happiness. God is full-blown for your happiness. He wants nothing more than for you to be happy and to find your happiness in him. We got to remember is that thinking like that, God just wants me to be happy, where that can lead, if you just tease that out in our everyday life, where does it stop? I mean, if I want to get an A on a test because that makes me happy, is cheating okay? If I want all of you to be my friend, And I have to lie to get you to like me. Is lying okay? Like at what point does the argument stop? I mean, you tease it out. There's hundreds of other illustrations we could use. So we need to make sure we answer the question clearly and biblically. Yes, God wants you to be happy. And he wants you to find ultimate happiness in him. And he knows all the other places we go to find happiness, they may give some happiness that are meant to direct us to him, but they also might destroy us in the end. And he knows that. And so he wants you to be happy. So he's protecting us. He's gathering us in to help us see what really is going to make you happy. But the world wants us to believe differently, doesn't it? The world wants us to think that your happiness is all based on whatever you want and getting whatever you want and getting it when you want it and no one telling you you can't have it. And so we just need to keep in mind that God does want us to be happy. The second thing that I would want to say is this. Your sexuality is not your identity, And again, the world is just jamming that down our throats. Our sexuality is everything. Every TV show, every movie, everything leads to either a guy and a girl hooking up, or two girls or two guys, something. Everything we watch. Listen, it's not your identity. Being married is not my identity. Being heterosexual is not my identity. Listen, you were made in the image of God. That's your identity. God created you uniquely, the way you are, because he loves you. That's your identity. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That is your identity. You have an eternal soul that will live forever. That is your identity. If you are a Christian this morning, you're a blood-bought, forgiven, justified child of God. That is your identity. Not even your gender. That's not your identity. What Jesus has done for you, you are a cherished friend of God. That is your identity. Jesus' love for you is so high, so wide, so long, so deep that it surpasses knowledge. That is your identity. You have been born again to a living hope. That's your identity. You are now a child of the Most High, eternal, beautiful, infinitely glorious God. That is your identity. Those are the things that we need to embrace and help each other to believe. It is not your sexuality that makes you who you are. You are who you are because you're a child of God made in the image of God to live eternally with Him. And we need to fight against, in our own, not outwardly to them, the world, but to us in our own mind, in our own souls, to not believe the world's lies that our identity is all wrapped up in our sexuality. We got to fight that. You can't believe it. The culture condones and celebrates so many sins. We need to recognize those and not join them in the celebration and find out what really makes us happy is God and walking with him. Lastly, past a moment here. Listen to everything I'm about to say and not just the first sentence. All sin is not the same. All sin is not the same. When Jesus says, and I'm using this verse specifically, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He is not saying that in God's eyes, lusting after someone inwardly is the same as actually going out and doing it. So, illustration. If I confess to the guys, I look twice at a girl in the gym. That's different than I said to them, I slept with a girl down the street. Wouldn't you say? They're different, so we can't flatten this out. But I use this example specifically because God is going after the issue of the heart, not the outward actions, if that makes sense. He he uses this illustration to help us see that God sees your heart. He sees what's going on inside of you. So if this morning you struggle with same-sex attraction, And I can't go into the details as to why you have that desire, because I think different people have that desire for different reasons. I don't think it's one answer that fits all. But I want you to understand (laughs) that Jesus understands what you're going through. So as I was praying, I believe the Lord just brought Hebrews 4.15 to mind. Not a verse I would have attached to this topic, but I believe the Spirit put it on my heart to attach it to this topic for us to embrace and enjoy. Hebrews four fifteen says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect. Every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That means Jesus knows how to sympathize with people who have same-sex attraction. He can sympathize with you. Just like, listen, he sympathized with people who have an overwhelming desire to lust after the, after the opposite sex, or to lie, or have an overwhelming desire to steal, or be greedy, or eat too much, or alcohol, or laziness. I mean, the list can go on. He sympathizes. He empathi- emphasizes. He, he knows how to... Comfort and be there for people who struggle with sin. So I say that they're not all the same, and I'm simultaneously saying Jesus knows them all. He's there to bring compassion and help in all of those and forgiveness in all of those, which is wonderful news for us as sinners. And I think it is important for us to keep in mind, on top of that, Matthew 11, where Jesus says, But I tell you, this is, this is the, they preach the gospel. And then he says this, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you if you reject the gospel. That's what the previous verses are saying. So basically, ultimately, the issue is what are you doing with Jesus? (laughs) Are you pursuing Christ? Do you see your need for his forgiveness? Do you want his closest to you? So ultimately, really, what separates someone from the grace of God is not same-sex attraction, but it's how we respond to Jesus' offer of forgiveness and help. So we run to Jesus for help because we need help. We all need help because we're all jacked up in some way. It's just different for some of us than others. So I hope that all helps you to see. I think the sin that provoked God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality, but ultimately it was about their hearts. It was about their idolatry. It was about their rejection of God's ways and wanting to do thing, things their own way. And I think that's what was going on. All right, concluding. Number three, the death of Lot's wife. The last big thing that God does here. I'm, just, I'm telling you how I process this stuff, and maybe you guys are like, Matt, you're an idiot. But it's always bothered me that she gets turned to a pillar of salt for turning around. I'm thinking Lot's the one who should be the pillar of salt. So what is it that gets her annihilated from turning around? Around, So, I am grateful that Jesus tells us, in Luke 17, what was really going on. Thank you, Jesus, for answering my question. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop, with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So here's the illustration. Jesus is going to use her to make a point. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So it wasn't just that she looked back, right? It was that she turned back. She was headed back to Sodom. And why? To preserve her life. She wanted to live her life the way she wanted to live her life back in Sodom. As horrid and horrible as Sodom was, for some reason, that was home for her. She fit in. She wanted to be there. She wanted to preserve her life. She didn't want to give up her life so she could find her life. She didn't want to embrace this new way that God wanted her to be living. And so she was turned into Pillar of Star, not just for looking back, but I think for turning back. So Jesus says, don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. And so, we this morning, I think, can get some mileage out of Lot's wife's situation. She preserves her life, and she dies because she wanted to go back. She wanted whatever it was that the world was offering in Sodom. And so she was ready to go get it. And I think, if we read all this in context and we tie it all together, I think the issue, perhaps, of homosexuality and lesbianism is an attempt to keep your life the way you want to keep your life rather than lose it for Christ. seems to be the context. And listen, that's true for every sin. That's true for every sin, Sin is, I want to preserve my life the way I want my life to go. Sin is, I'm on this journey with Jesus, and my sin is, I want to turn back to my old way of living. I mean, that's what it is. And so Jesus is just trumpeting here, commentating on this story in Genesis and saying, remember Lot's wife, don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Don't try to preserve your life. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Don't turn back. Don't try to preserve yourself. Go hard after Christ. And so the application for all of these stories, we've got destruction. We've got horror. We've got rescue and escape. But I think the bottom line of all of this really is, are you tempted to look back? (laughs) I think that's it. Are you tempted to turn back? Are you prone to turn back? Are you positioned right now to escape the wrath of God? Or do you think you'd like to just turn around and run back to your old way? And if you are, then this is a moment for you to turn from your turning back and turn back to Christ and turn to him and to remember Lot's wife and to not look back. So, decide afresh today to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. That's the message of this chapter. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that together this morning as a way of celebrating that Jesus, in all of his kindness and mercy, has not only allowed us to escape wrath— But to be declared righteous, we get both in Jesus. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together for that end and for that reason. And so what we're going to do is the band is just going to play for a minute. And what I'm going to do is ask everybody to stand. And there is bread and juice and wine on either side. There's gluten-free in the back. You can take your bread and dip it in the wine or the juice and come back to your seat. And then you can take whenever you'd like. You can eat whenever you want to. We doing a little different this morning. Um, and you can you can eat the bread as we start to sing um, two songs together. There is little cups of juice up there, so for some reason you don't feel comfortable dipping your bread, you can just take that little cup of juice with you back to your seat. Does that make sense? So let's let's stand together. Band's gonna play. If you guys want to go ahead and get the elements, the gluten free is in the back, and then you can take it as we're singing. We'll start singing in a minute.